Greetings, everyone. I'm Hiten Rawadwa, the founder of Mentora Institute, and it is a great pleasure for me to welcome you to Intersections, where our aspiration is to dissolve boundaries between science and spirituality, between the inner and the outer, between East and West and beyond, for the purpose of having us explore, explore our full potential as human beings, as humanity, and as life at large. Uh, today, we will have the opportunity to do that dissolving of boundaries in a very, very special way by creating a connection between two of real passions for me. One of them is um, to learn from different, very storied uh, faith-based disciplines. And we have the honor and privilege today to have one of the preeminent exponents of Sufism, one of these disciplines that I have long had a deep fascination and respect and reverence for. And the other thing we will do is combine that exposure and education and inspiration gaining from Sufism with one topic that in some ways is at the very core of advancing human consciousness, which is what does it take for us to consciously sculpt our personality. To share insights and learnings on these topics with us, I have in our midst today, Sheikh Alma Sheikh Mahmood Khan, who is a senior Sufi representative of the Inayat Khan Sufism movement. And let me just tell you a little bit about Sheikh Alma Sheikh to get us started. He is a descendant of an ancient family of Sufi saints and thinkers and musicians. He is somebody who's learned Sufism so closely from within just the practice in his own family and then ultimately in his own life. And therefore, he's learned it from within, both, both the theory and the understanding of what it is, but also the lived practice of how to experience and express it. He's devoted his life to the preservation and enhancement of a particular movement in Sufism, the Indian Sufism movement, and its very mystical and musical traditions. He's been granted the rank of a knight officer in the Order of Orange Nassau for his services to Sufism by the King of Netherlands. And he's had, can you believe that, over nine decades of involvement in Inaitian Indian Sufism. And therefore, he is in a really exceptional position within the Sufi world to come today and share his insights and thoughts with us. I am so grateful to have you in our midst. Welcome so much, Sheikh Alma Sheikh. The one thing I really you know, found so heartwarming about our interaction right from the get-go is that you you turn this around so graciously into what I'm doing, whereas I'm here to really celebrate and value all, all these decades of beautiful contributions that, that you have made. And I just see that as an instinct in you, just to look for goodness and to celebrate the goodness in, in anyone that you are maybe interacting with. So, so thank you for just kind of living out your, you know, your own teaching just through that very gracious expression. Sheikh Alma Sheikh, can we, can we just maybe start by having you lay out for us, what is Sufism? Yes, well, Sufism started, let us say, as a kind of blanket term. Uh, well, let me start with what Inad Khan, the great modern Sufi today, used to say. He said, Sufism was intellectually born in Arabia, devotionally reared in Persia, and spiritually completed in India. Now, what does he mean by the born intellectually in Persia, there he thinks not, you know, of the Bedou and all, all the sandy wastes of Arabia, but of the great Baghdad civilization, which was one of the, uh, for many centuries, Baghdad, until, of course, the destruction by the Mongols, was a cultural center which integrated all the traditions of the Middle East, of the Mediterranean. So, even the older Egyptian tradition is represented in it, then all these different spiritual currents, Gnosticism, and all the different religions of the Middle East, including Zoroastrianism. Then, of course, very important, the Greek tradition, as you know, in the same way that the Greek philosophical tradition was the root of European philosophy, the same thing applied to Persia, uh, to, to, to Arabia. So, and Greek Neoplatonism became an important element in Arabic Greek philosophy and ultimately became the philosophical background of these different schools and esoteric schools and training facilities and philosophies which flourished in the Baghdad period. And so, as I say, then Sufism in a sense was a blanket term. In the course of time, it became more specific but it still always was the heir of that enormously rich, let's say, Western tradition 
of the Mediterranean, of the Middle East. In that sense, it arrived in Persia. And there, of course, you get an enormous flourishing of mystical poetry uh, of the Persians. There, of course, that's why Inatran says, was devotionally reared in Persia. Why devotionally? Because beauty. There in, in Persia, it was the beauty of verse, the beauty of, of uh, poetry, which expressed these mystical sentiments as a mystical experience. And so in that shape of beauty, when you are touched by something of beauty, then already you forget your outer self. You forget your external self because you are focused on whatever thing strikes you as beautiful. It may be nature, maybe one of the arts, it may be even one of the sciences, something which totally absorbs you, raises you already out of your own empirical outer selfhood. So that was a very important step in Persia. Then Sufin came to India. And there, of course, as Mujdinatra keeps reminding us, there Sufism was enormously enriched by the fact that India had an ages-long tradition of meditation, of spiritual contemplation, of contemplative philosophy, of everything to do with the spiritual life that had been there from the oldest time, the Vedic time onwards. So there you get suddenly a Sufism which is enormously enriched by that tradition which is already present in India. And what, in a sense, you might say, Sufism added to that was, of course, that very much the great traditions of India, the greatest ones anyway, uh, different schools of Hindu philosophy, yoga, and of course the Buddhism, which after all is an outgrowth of Indian traditions, that they tended to idealize something which, of course, for spiritual life is wonderful. That means the world renunciation. But Sufism, as from its Western tradition, uh, was kind of world embracing. And so, in a sense, uh, the work of Inatram was also of making, uh, emphasizing that uh, Indian spirituality in the shape of Sufism could also be world embracing. So that cultural element became very important as well. And you know, there was a great integration of cultures in India anyway. And let me remind you that in the world generally, we have had great cultures, generally uh, great civilizations, great societies, mostly focused, built around some kind of uh, religious ideology. But there have always been minorities in every whether or not they were tolerated. You know, Europe has a terrible, bad, terribly bad record of tolerating minorities. We know all that. In most other societies, there was a certain tolerance for minorities. But the unique thing of India, and I cannot emphasize that enough, has been that in India there was not a question of a, a dominant society and minorities. In India you had two full-grown civilizations, the Indian one in the sense of the, the Hindu tradition with all everything that entailed, that as I said, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, everything that included that Indian tradition, religious, philosoph philosophical, and mystical at the same time. All these three levels with their enormous riches, and that was the Indian civilization as such. Then you get the other civilization, in principle the Islamic civilization, which was, of course, very much again developed throughout the Baghdad tradition, then through Persia. So in India, you had the extraordinary, in my view, unique element that two of the greatest world civilizations lived together for centuries and lived together uh, in, in harmony. Of course, you had all kind of rulers who fought with one another for territory and for whatever. But in that, the confessional element was never really there. Uh, for instance, the famous Maratha revolt, which is only later presented as a kind of national Indian revolt by later historians that projected backward. They, they also just about fought with Muslim armies and Muslim officers. So there was not a confessional difference between these different princes who fought, but they always fight, that's what the princes for. But there was that unity between two great civilizations in one, admittedly large subcontinent, but it's they still with it. And it, according to me, in uh, the whole tradition of the world, that's unique. Not one major and minorities, but two full grown civilizations living and that only broke down when that foreign element of nationalism came in. And then you get nationalism and you get that idea of one man, one vote democracy, that all these notions we did not belong either to one or the other, 
and that created total different actually disasters. Because then again, right. in the subcontinent broke up in so many different uh, parts and as it is today. Sure. We, don't sure. Yet see, we do not yet see what we have seen in Europe, where the great countries, uh, France and Germany, had been enemy for centuries. And then after the century, we were saying, stop this nonsense, now we have to become one. And they did. We're still waiting for that to happen in the subcontinent. Right. So this was a very powerful uh, sweep through the, the history and journey of Sufism. I find that from what you've said that uh, clearly it uh, comes across as a very assimilative kind of tradition, something that is very nuanced based on the multiple influences that it's had. And the culmination of that journey from Baghdad to Persia to India that you've shared, when you come to India and then the Islam kind of spark, the initial spark in Sufism meets with the Hindu civilization of India, are you, are you suggesting that it was that interface between the two that kind of led to that final step in the evolution of what is called Indian Sufism? Exactly. And that is what the, the modern Hazrat Inatran always insists upon. And he said, well, of course, the way these two great civilizations, the Hindu civilization, the Muslim civilization, if you want to define religiously, but both of them had, so to speak, an upper story of mysticism. The, 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 uh, and in mysticism, you will always be experienced the same. So an ultimate human fulfillment, ultimate human spiritual life, there, if you experience it through the method of Sufism, or through the method of one of the Hindu schools, or through the method of Buddhism, you, the, the achievement will be the same. The experience of inner reality will be the same. People were formulated according to their philosophical or religious concepts, but that's a formulation of something which goes down to a lower level. But as an experience, it is the same. I, I like very much what you're saying, which is the way we have, in a very naive and simple way, kind of try to partition the world into these religious kind of identities. What you're saying is that, actually speaking, across all of these great faiths, there is a undercurrent of mysticism. And when a mystic from one faith meets a mystic from another faith, they are like brothers and sisters. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the outer form of the faith is. Absolutely, absolutely. That's perfectly true. Yes, yes. And yes. that has been there in India very strongly. Yeah, so beautiful. Let's do this. Let's translate this from the broader outer commentary to the more personal commentary for about another you know, 10 minutes. And then we want to go into the art of personality. Yeah. So could you share with us a little bit the contribution that has been made in your family, right? In this whole, in this whole journey, I mean, from Hazrat Inayat Khan to beyond. Could you share a little bit about that, maybe culminating in your own? Could we spend about five minutes on that? <laughs> well, it's hard to do that in short period. But anyway, of course, the family, they, in the first place, they came in from Central Asia at the time that a very unpleasant fellow was ruling there, Timur Lenk. So that was not a person they felt comfortable with. So they migrated to India and eventually settled on land in, in northern India again in Punjab. And so they took, had taken with them that idea of, of, of mysticism. But then, of course, that developed, created great development in India. Another thing they had, you know, there was that kind of shamanistic tradition of incantation. Now, their incantation developed into Indian classical music and their um, sense of, uh, well, magic of, of, the, of mysticism developed into typical Sufism and became a typical Indian Sufism. So there, of course, that assimilation to that existing culture, which they found in India, had been very strong and very fertile. And that continued for many generations. The tradition was that in every generation of the family, list, at least there should be one full mystic. And uh, so that was their uh, general. And then, of course, that mysticism became combined with music, because it's all very well to live off land and have the time to cultivate mysticism and all kinds of things. But uh, or, or land ownership, unless you have it on a very large scale, is precarious. And there may be the harvest, maybe um, uh, you will lose your harvest, you know, you must lose, may lose your farmers, you may, all kinds of things may happen which diminish your position as a landowning family. So it was precarious. You had to do something with your culture. The culture, you spent your time on culture, but you have to do something that that culture can be made useful also in case of need. So in that, their case, that was music. So where their ideal 
occupation of their leisure was in fact mysticism. At the same time, music was something which was cultivated and very, very akin to mysticism because it brought in a lot of aesthetic contemplation. But at the same time, so they could be practically used if your land did not produce the, to meet your needs. Then, of course, there was always, you had recourse to the, the many courts in India to close. You didn't publish, you didn't play music in public. You always had closed circles of music lovers or closed the, these uh, Maharaja courts and so on, where you could perform in private. So that was there. That was there. And so uh, with Inat Khan, you get suddenly this whole idea that music and mysticism, which have an old tradition of togetherness in the Indian, especially in Indian civilization, that was the kind of thing he wanted to bring to the fore again. Because for him, music was the highest form of, of aesthetic contemplation. And that aesthetic contemplation, beauty already kind of raises you out of your I-ness. If you said if your self-food is already, so to speak, dissolved in the beauty of nature and the beauty of art, but to the highest degree in music because it is the most abstract of the arts. So for him, the musical uh, contemplation was something which already leads up to the meditative life. And that was actually what he, uh, uh, what he you know, when he came to the West with his two brothers, it, he didn't at all come to come and spread Sufism as later his followers have pretended, but it's absolutely untrue. They, they went just to make a ground tour of the West and to come to know the Western world. And of course, then he gave lectures and he wanted to say, all right, the Europeans have brought a lot of benefits to India in many ways, but they should also recognize that India has many things of, of matchless greatness, which Europe has never known. So if you don't mind pausing there for a second, uh, Sheikh Amar Sheikh, I just want to make sure people are, we are all tracking you. So you are now talking about this preeminent teacher of Indian Sufism, right? And he is a pioneer in then bringing this Indian Sufism to the West. That's right. But it was completely spontaneous. Because as said, he and his two brothers went to the West in 1910 to come to know the West, but at the same time to inform the West that they had a lot of things to bring to India, but India had some things which in themselves were matchless. And to them, the highest kind of cultural expression of Indian life was precisely the music. So what happened? Inat Khan gave a number of lectures on music, but also relating that to Indian spiritual life. And once, or actually twice, he was invited to speak in the Hindu temple in San Francisco, I think it was. I always get mixed up, excuse me for that, with San Francisco and Los Angeles. One of those places was the Hindu. So there he, was, he gave a lecture on music. But whenever he spoke of music, he related to the Indian traditions. He said, look at the Hindu gods. They invented the Veena, huh? Shiva invented the Veena, uh, Saraswati invented the Southern Veena, then Krishna had the flute. And so it, music has been divine in India from the earliest time. And then he mentioned these great old saints of music, Narada, and so on and so forth. So he said he spoke about music and Indian mysticism that, so to speak, related to that music. You know what the reaction of people was? He, then he played his music after all his explanations. Then people said, well, you know, this music of India, it's interesting, we like it. It's curious, but don't really understand it. But what you said about the mystical, of the spiritual linkage of music, that interest is very, can't you tell us more about that? And that way he started quite spontaneously, quite without any intention of wanting to bring Sufism to the West. He started shifting his explanations of music, more and more explanations of mysticism. And what he did was that typical Indian mysticism, which is completely, uh, as I say, uh, completely merged in that Indian tradition. So you find the Advaita, Vaishishta Advaita, and all the different concepts which you know in the Hindu tradition, you find in uh, both as such and in their parallels in tradition, traditional Sufism. Very nice. We want to spend, uh, in a few minutes, we want to get to apply that to the art of personality. That's I think right. we have just about five minutes more, uh, Sheikh Al Sheikh, to talk about family before we get to that. You know, would you mind sharing a little bit about some of the other luminaries in your family lineage beyond this wonderful pioneer who went forth to the West with his two brothers, for yeah. which we were just uh, talking about? For example, Maybe you can talk for a minute about um, actually what brings you and me together is the initial introduction I got to your family through my daughter coming to me 
and talking about Nurinayat Khan and talking about what an incredible hero she has been to her, to my daughter. That got me to study your cousin, Nurinayat Khan. Maybe you can talk about her and then, and then uh, we'll, we'll close with a little bit of life reflection about you for the next five minutes and then come back to the art of personality. Uh, well, of course, I'm, I should also give, uh, mention one person more. You said if you want to talk about your family, that was the, in the best of Indian matrilineal traditions, that was the maternal grandfather. He was really declared the patriarch of the family. He drove that family from the Punjab into Baroda and he was a great musician as well. He, and he sought to connect the Hindustani and the Carnatic forms of music. And, of course, he was, went to the Carnatic. He was very successful in, in, in Mysore and these places. And so he um, adopted very many habits and traditions of the South. And so for him, that matrilineal tradition became very important. And Inat Khan, being his maternal grandson, very much was influenced by him also. Now... That was that personality. I think there might be a picture of him also among the photographs, uh, of us. Now, um, in addition, you asked about Nubanese. Um, well, she was, of course, Enad Khan's daughter, the elder of his two daughters. And here she is, yes. And she was an extraordinarily gifted person of her own and very versatile. But there was something in her which, at the same time, if you look at that tragic fate of hers in the war, there was something in the early life kind of prefigures that, in the sense when Inat Khan suddenly died, she was 12, 13 years old. And then, of course, her mother had completely collapsed. She was no longer able to function, really. And she, as a 13-year-old girl, had to kind of sacrifice her young life for the sake of her siblings, with all of them younger, and she had to kind of take over care of them. So there you will find that element of self-sacrifice. Then another thing is that discussing religions, which of course Sufi, the Sufi used to do, his Sufi followers used to discuss it. Then Christianity, among all the religions, was called the religion of divine self-sacrifice. So France, of course, was a Christian country to the extent of religious at all. It had a kind of Catholic tradition. So Christianity, divine self-sacrifice. Then she herself involved in sacrificing her young girl's life for the sake of her siblings. Then, then of course, in Sufism, you have that idea of nafs, the, the, the selfhood which, had, which has to be transcended. Now, in Inar, transfer the development of that view, uh, of that teaching. Um, of course, you grow out of your personality, but first you develop your personality, then you grow out of it. But in the earlier days, they speak of Nafskoshi, the person, who was very rigid, killing the outside ego, and kind of uh, uh, the ego must be, so to speak, done away with. So that Nafskoshi, that crushing the ego, crushing selfhood, that again was enough. So you see all these elements playing in this young girl's life. And then she published a book of Buddhist Jataka tales. And there you see that all we see that the Bodhisattva in his different appearances in the animal world sacrifices himself for his fellows. And so then all the others are able to live happily because of the sacrifice of that main, of that main Bodhisattva who is really, uh, their leader and then sacrifices himself for, uh, for them. So with all those emphases on self-sacrifice, it is understandable that, so to speak, her whole life was prefigured. And in a way, she was a beautiful girl. She had a very dainty personality, highly intelligent, deeply sensitive, a very impressive person. Once you met her, you wouldn't have forgotten her. So in a way, that enormous loss. Thank you for sharing that past because it really helps me understand better what must have been going on within her to make her reach this really remarkable point where, from what I understand from their history, both she and her brother decided that they were not going to participate in the war in a way that would put them in a position where they were going to kill people because they were practitioners of nonviolence. But at the same time, they wanted to put themselves in a place where they could make the highest sacrifice from the standpoint of serving, serving the community. And in her case, she ended up being a radio operator. And the average survival of a radio operator was just a few months before they were actually discovered by the Nazis behind enemy lines and were ultimately typically arrested and killed. And so she put herself in harm's way without 
taking on a position that would put anybody else in harm's way in order to serve the community. I thought that was just incredible. That was just incredible. And that's what happened. She went there to behind the enemy lines in, in France and uh, became this radio operator for a while. And then she was discovered and, or, you know, betrayed and arrested and uh, killed, ultimately. I mean, it's, it's an incredible story of heroism. It's a really incredible story. And you see, first, she was warned from a, a leader from England. They said, all right, you have been here for very long. You are not too much in danger. Your whole network has already been arrested. Now you come back. Now you have to come back and send a plane and pick you up. She said, no, I will not go before my replacement. If you have arranged for a replacement. Somebody must replace me. I won't come now. Then she found some kind of solution apparently for this. Or then they said, no, you have to come, but life becomes too dangerous. The second time she agreed, all right, I will come. It was being arranged that a plane would be sent. That moment she was betrayed. So it's an extraordinary kind of coincidence of, uh, of her life and extremely tragic, extremely heroic. And very, very touching. I, I uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's such an honor to be talking to you, you know, in the context of uh, just knowing what I have learned about her and just what like an incredible story she is. Uh, folks, um, you know, I encourage you, if you don't really know about Noor Inayat Khan, get to know her. I mean, she is, um, you know, very actively in the in the history pages. She's been honored by Great Britain as well for her contributions. And um, more recently, there have been a number of movies that have been made on, on her life. And so there's much that one can really kind of learn about her. And um, I, I would encourage you to do that. And, you know, to be sitting here with uh, with her cousin, right? You, Sheikh Alma Sheikh, is, is an incredible honor. Now, coincidentally, this is really special. But just um, a couple of days ago, one of my colleagues, Mohit, at um, Mentora Institute just told me that there was in this Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, there was a question that was asked about her as to what alliance she used during the Second World War. The answer is, you know, Jean-Marie Renier. And so coincidentally, Noor and I Khan was actually on the Indian airwaves just this week. Sir, let's do this. If you're okay with it, I want to go into the art of personality since we yeah. promised that to our uh, listeners that yeah. today we're going to dive into that. And yeah. so I, I have a quote here from Hazrat uh, Inayat Khan's book where Pirzia Inayat Khan, right? He's saying this. He's saying that uh, individuality is given. That's what Hazrat Inayat Khan says. But personality must be discovered and created. Yes. In a realized personality, the soul expresses its divine inheritance through its thoughts, words, and actions. In personality, you know, is born that spirit, which is the rebirth of the soul. I really loved, uh, I really loved these lines. And um, this is a book that I'm basically reading from. So for our audience, um, it's, it's a book of uh, compiled lectures and thoughts from Hazrat Anayat Khan on topics like personality and character. So um, what I really loved about that, Sheikh Sheikh, is that in the West, until recently, there has been a lot of emphasis on what personality are you? What personality are you? What personality are you? As though each of us is a completely fixed personality. Yes. But here is ancient wisdom telling us that, no, there's an art of personality. There's an art of cultivating personality, of choosing and refining your personality over time. And, and always, why develop that personality? Of course, in the first place, to, in order to communicate with your fellow man, in order to serve your fellow man, to be, that's a very important uh, tenet, very important aspect of personality, to communicate with the other, to sacrifice for the etc. But at the same time, also to have something to outgrow. As a human being, you always need some further goal to reach. And the human being, going through the different stages, at this young age, the emphasis may be on his physical existence, but then it becomes his intellectual existence, maybe then his emotional existence, his, his existence of feeling life. But beyond the physical, beyond the psychological, there's, so to speak, that story of his house, let us say, which is the life of his soul. But to reach that, you also have to first complete the other types, complete your ground floor of physical being, complete your first floor of the mind and the heart. Then in that hand says, then, well, you see, the heart is the depth of the mind, the mind is the surface of the heart, but both the intellectual element and also the emotional element of the mind are developed in, you know, in, uh, in, in acting through the body. So the mind and the body sort of create your own personality with its emotions and with its thoughts. Heart has its own autonomy, so to speak, its faculty of loving, its sense of beauty, a sense of 
the inner realities of life. And so the heart already looks to two, in, in, in two directions. It looks to the mind, it looks to the body, but at the same time it looks to that further third story of the human being, the soul. It opens up to the life of the soul. So the completion of every stage of this life, physical, mental, the heart's life, the soul, is essential for the fulfillment for the, of the next stage. You know, it's so, so rich and so profound, uh, sir. And, um, you know, one of the things I'm hearing from you recurrently, which I just want to highlight for myself and for others, is this theme of beauty and how in Sufism, it almost seems to me like there is this celebration of the art in everything. And, you know, what you're saying is that the greatest, in a sense, painting that each of us is responsible for making is our own self is the beauty of our own personality. Yes, that's right, that's right, yes. And that is the great, yeah, the sense of beauty as such already raises one beyond one's, the narrowness of one's external self. Because you contemplate each to which you can re uh, reach out. And by the very joy of reaching out to that which you experience as beautiful, already one's personality, so to speak, expanded and deepened and getting a further element of enrichment. So to that end, what uh, have you found in your teachings and your community's teachings to be the building blocks, so to say? Or how do you unpack and dissect this idea of personality, which can be otherwise so profound and so at times imposing, you know, for someone to think about? Well, of course, with him, it is always with Inatran, start with very simple things in order to come to the very profound ones. That's another thing. He almost, very often is teaching he is almost playfully light in, um, in what he says in order to reach something very profound. So, in out of personality, he begins, the first thing, look at creating a kind of sense of humanity in yourself. That's the basic thing. The, create a sense of humanity and develop the humane qualities of the personality. How do you develop that? Whatever you do in life, however you are active in life, Try to develop a love of beauty in whatever sense. Try to love, as I said, the beauty of nature or the beauty of any form of art or indeed the beauty of contemplating certain aspects of science and whatever it be, but contemplate something which you can experience for you, for your taste, as something beautiful. Because that will already kind of stabilize and develop your sense of being and expand your sense of whom you are, of the personality you aim at becoming. So love of beauty is a very first thing, and anybody can, everybody has some kind of taste. You have, as a human being, you have a kind of taste, a kind of intuition, which something you grasp intuitively as something which you can relate to as you find really beautiful. At whatever stage of development a person is, something will be there which appeals to him. So cultivate that. Cultivate that sense not only of your concerns and your material interests, but alongside them, not that there's anything wrong with them, but supplement them by something which is, uh, which is beauty, which develops that sense of beauty in you. And um, so, as I said, there is that um, mind and heart, the mind and heart, that relationship of the mind and heart, the second story, so to speak, of the house of the Sufi, and they uh, have to interact with one another. And uh, then in that same context, he says, very, because he always you know, wants to bring you something light when he speaks something very profound, he wants to bring you something of a certain lightness of touch as well. That's typical for him as well. So he said, you see, every soul has a sense of beauty. Every soul has to be an Apsara in Indra's court. And don't think that you can be a bystander, that your soul can be a bystander there. No, you have to dance as well. You have to dance to, as an Apsara in the court of India, to have that sense of beauty of divine reality. So the first thing is that sense of beauty. Then the second thing, which he finds extremely important, develop a sense of gratitude, of appreciation. In other words, that's again something which transcends your ego awareness. Because by gratitude, by appreciation, you create an accommodation in yourself regarding somebody else. There are all these people who always want to be critical of somebody else. No, begin by appreciation, begin by gratitude. So look at beauty, look at, uh, develop gratitude, appreciation for everything you can find in life to regard as a cause 
for that gratitude among you, from your fellow men, from circumstances, from conditions, whatever. Then there is, of course, to check impulses, to control one's impulses. And that's what he calls turning a man into a gentleman. Now, I don't know how he would put that in the female, but anyway, in those days, that was not much a problem because it included, <laughs> men included everybody. So, turn man into a gentleman because gentleness, he says, gentleness is the principal thing in the art of personality because that gentleness teaches you consideration, consideration for another person. And so uh, that's what he recommends. And that section, he, he concludes by the words, how rightly the, the distinction has been made in the English language between man and gentleman. <laughs> so that is what he says about that checking of a person, controlling oneself that one should never hurt anybody by any word or any expression or any behavior. Don't hurt any of your fellow men, not even those closest to you, and certainly those who are uh, further away, don't hurt another person. Then, of course, there are different other of these elements. One is, don't try persuasiveness. Don't try to impose your opinion to persuade another person of your opinion. No, don't do that. It's much better to, uh, if there is a, an issue of that kind, rather take back your own, your own aspiration. Rather, uh, do not impose your ideas on the other, but avoid persuasiveness at any time I can whatsoever, even at the sacrifice of your own desires. So let me jump in on that one. The ones that you have shared so far, I was relating to and, you know, quite a lot. This last one that you've shared, I'm intrigued to unpack it a little bit more because there might be some nuance there that I'm missing, you know, at present. <laughs> for, for instance, if you are an agent of justice, if there is some injustice going on, if there are some weaker people and you have a position of strength because you are perhaps, you know, the parent or if you are a person societally in a position where you have certain resources available, to you, then would it not be the right thing to do to, in fact, um, seek to use whatever resources you have, your power of persuasion, your, you know, your personality, whatever, to seek to right a wrong and yes. to seek to move people in the right direction rather than be quiet? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And that you would find in many other pages in Nathan as well. But, you know, he always says one, he, one point, he makes one point in a particular context, he may make exactly the opposite point in another context. You know? Okay, okay. <laughs> so he, it's not that, that because he says this, this applies in all circumstances, all conditions, this is just a sense of personal discipline. Personal, yes, discipline yes. With one's relationships where indeed one has, to, of course, to stand for those things which I need to defend. That, that makes a lot of sense. I really loved what you just said because uh, in my own work in recent years, I've definitely emerged with this conclusion that um, while we may seek to be very grounded and centered from within, from the outside, we often have to be everything and the complete opposite. It just depends on the situation. Exactly. And to have that wisdom to know and that freedom to be able to choose is yes. what um, makes us... Absolutely, oh. yes, 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 exactly. No, that is perfectly right. But he, as I say, he is very much concerned here with this particular kind of reading of the person as person in order to, to, to function outside. But really, how do you... But you're absolutely right in making the remark you made. I'm glad you made it because, as I said, that would certainly be a thing you find in many different contexts. It would take a whole lecture to discuss these matters, of course. But anyway, it's interesting and valuable. Now, another thing what he uh, brings up then is there is in the human being what the Sufis call kibriya. And kibriya really means vanity, vanity or pride or conceit. And then he says, well, you see, that kind of kibriya, that kind of vanity, of course, it's a something which you would like to overcome. But it's at the same time, something you will never overcome because that's simply part of the human ego. The human being has that sense of vanity in it. So it is not a thing you can root out or you can change, but you can develop it. You can develop it to something that, you say, make it reincarnate as a plant of desires. So the ego, it may be the ego, but that ego is also related to the soul. It's related to the divine spark as in the human being. So you have to accommodate, to allow that, uh, that kind of vanity to develop into something which is beyond pure ego satisfaction, let us say. So that's quite a subtle 
a question, but it is something which he finds very important. You know, I get reminded there of um, a moment in the life of Benjamin Franklin, you know, who um, accomplished uh, individual, you know, one of the founding fathers here in the United States, uh, explorer, discoverer, scientist, everything. So he, uh, he once talked about how a friend told him that people respect you, but they don't necessarily like you <laughs> because you come across as very strong in that persuasion sense. Yes, yes, and yes. Yeah, he said, I, I decided that I'll work on that. I'll work on that quality in myself. And uh, came to a place where I was basically trying to cultivate more humility, I guess. You know, that would be, in a sense, kind of like the opposite of vanity. And then he said that I realized after a while that I was starting to achieve some success in cultivating humility. And now I'm afraid that I might be not humble about the fact that I am exactly. humble. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's again a thing which you find in the Nathan repeatedly, <laughs> even once humility can become one's vanity. So he said, well, you right. know, it's always there. It's always there it's, it's because it is that sense of I which is simply inborn in the human being and which ultimately is maybe a divine quality. But if that is so, make it a divine quality and abandon those outward kind of vanities which are really nothing more than just feathers in the air. But there is something which you have to recognize. You can never say that you have really conquered it all. You are bound as a human being to your physical and mental being. But just be aware of it and try to have that quality deepened and refined and further developed in, to do as a sense of divine fulfillment. So that's the kind of thing he says about it. Well, then, of course, another thing, and there again you see how strongly this is focused on the development of the human personality, the breeding of the single human being. And that's why I think it's worthwhile nowadays where all these things generally tend to be very lax in many different societies, especially in the West, of course. Then he says, one other aspect which you need is self-respect, is dignity, but at a proper time. Again, it is something which you have to maintain, you have a certain dignity, you certainly need a certain self-respect, but again, in a proper time, don't use that against others. Use it to harmonize with others, use it to, to be one with others, don't use it to set yourself off as from others. So to him again, that was a very important aspect of life. And then he says, what is nobleness of character? What is nobleness of character? It's in the wide, uh, wide outlook. The wider the outlook of the being, that is the nobleness of the human character. Wideness and depth of the outlook. And it will be no surprise coming in this whole series of ideas of how the human personality will be developed. Another thing, he says, the manners and qualities. Those manners which a person has, the qualities which he displays, which are an outcome of consideration, an outcome of that sense, how do you deal with others in a proper way, which he considers extremely important in the development of the human personality. And um, then of thoughtfulness and consideration and a certain economy in expression. To have a measured mode of expression, he says, is also a form of modesty and at the same time a way in which you, you, whatever you express becomes all the more effective. Sheikh Amr Sheikh, let's talk about that because I was reading some of these um, qualities in, you know, in, in this book uh, and um, you, you talked about economy and I found that really fascinating, really fascinating. So I'm, I'm going to quote a couple of things from this book and ask you to you know, share more. And so it, you know, it says here, economy is about to try and save another person, spare another person from using energy in the way of thought, speech and action. Sometimes this consideration comes to one, actually, in some ways, it comes to one from the moment one begins to realize the value of life. So it's about re realizing the value of life. Yes. And as one begins to consider this subject, one spares oneself from unnecessary thought, speech or action and economically uses one's own thought, speech and action. And by valuing one's own life and action, yes. one learns to value the same for others. Economizing with one's money is of much less importance. This is fascinating to me. It's of much less importance compared to economizing with one's life and energy and that of others. 
It's a stunningly beautiful thought because, you know, in, in our material world, we tend to measure everything in terms of money and um, material possessions. Yes. But here we are saying that there is a whole other metric, which is the finite amount of energy that you have, you know, for your time on this planet. And yes. what are you doing to maximize the potential of every moment and use it in the wisest possible way? Exactly. Exactly. Yes, yes. That's his point. That's his point indeed. It's beautiful. It reminds me also of a quote from uh, Henry David Thoreau, one of these uh, transcendentalists here in the United States who borrowed so much from some of these uh, Eastern traditions. He said, the price of anything is the amount of life you exchange for it. Ah, that's wonderfully said. That's wonderfully expressed indeed. Yes, that's the same idea. But very, very yeah. well said. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's true. So wonderful. So you were taking us through some of these other attributes of personality. Yes, yes, yes. So these are, as you said, that the uh, are very much focused on the development of the human personality. As you see, it start, he will start one starts to take action in life. Uh, but it is always then it's something what uh, we would call the ob uh, the objectivity. But Inatran here calls it in this particular context. He calls it an awakened sense of justice. Because that's part of the human personality, to have an awakened sense of justice and you know, the possibility to qualify things. And he says that is a way of making the soul alive. Justice means unselfishness, taking away your judgment because you're always related, neither to be, uh, to be kind of you know, prejudiced about something which you don't agree with, to be prejudiced about an opinion which you don't like, etc., etc. So try to uh, gain a sense of justice through unselfishness and practice it upon yourself. Practice it upon yourself, that justice, that fairness, and as I say, to reach precisely what we, in a modern terms, call objectivity. Be objective in your dealings with yourself in the very first place. And then, when you say objective in dealing with yourself, do you mean being honest with yourself about your own faults, not just your trends? Would that be an example? Exactly, exactly. Is that ability to be objective about yourself, to be uh, to have a certain practice, the justice, to have a certain fairness, etc., and really to quite the yes, for the sense of that you have to take back yourself a bit. People are unable to take themselves, they're constantly in a subjective opinion about themselves, mostly very emotional as well. And so that whole idea of being objective is not there. So that's for him a very, very important thing to be. Uh, to you be know, it's very interesting you say that because I mean, you share this quality of justice in a broader sense, because typically we think of justice today in the modern world in terms of certain social values that we stand for, that we believe in, that you should not steal somebody else's property. You should treat everybody equally, regardless of race and gender. You know, we think of that as justice. But you're saying there's another kind of just like subtler form of everyday, personal, intimate kind of relationship that you have with justice, which is that are you being just? Are you being objective? Are you being balanced? Are you eliminating the fogginess in your, in your vision to see things in a clear mental light? Wow, that's a really powerful rethinking, uh, you know, of what justice really is. And he really goes so far that he says that is really this is what makes the art of personality into a reality because it's the secret of the soul's unfolding. So that's really going very far. So the secret of the soul's unfolding is, in fact, to have that sense of, well, what he calls that sense of justice, objectivity. That's really powerful, really beautiful. And of course, sooner or later, inevitably, when Inatran discusses something, you will come to music. So what does he say as another uh, block uh, in it, what, this uh, series? He says, the art of personality is like the art of music. It is all ear training and voice culture. And he says, to become refined is to become musical. The inward art of refinement, uh, the outward refinement is meaningless if it's not prompted, prompted by an inner impulse towards beauty. So that outward, you know, etiquette, these forms of this is just to show they have no value, of course. But if, that is, if it is an inner impulse towards beauty, then what is expressed in the form of, uh, of beauty, of musical sense, that is a certain refinement which any human being has to cultivate himself in relation to everybody else. Yes. I find this really a wonderful metaphor. You know, the idea that um, you're saying music 
and the sense of ear training you need for music, you know, one can look at that as your relationship with life, I guess, and with your interactions with people that, you know, can you tune in to the particular chord that is being struck or the note that is being struck? And, you know, what is the feeling that they're going through? What is the thought they're going through? And how do you then need to respond? Is, is that, that's what I was gauging from that. Yes, exactly. Ear training and voice culture. How do you perceive the other person? How do you express towards the other person? It is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. One of the things I've seen, for example, is that some of us, we get too caught up in the idea of just uh, trying to understand what is right. And then as long as we feel we are in the right, we just need to express it and say it. And it's a, it's a great like step in the maturation of our own personality to actually recognize that our responsibility ends not just merely in knowing and saying what is right, but in knowing how to say it, when to say it, to whom to say it, how much to say it. Exactly so. He says, never throw truth on a person's head like a stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People who want to, they are right, they throw something at you as if they throw a stone at you. Well, that's not the way of... Uh, of uh, of being right. That always yeah. is that kind of delicacy of the, the having a sense of how that other person is attuned and attuned into that person's mode of, of uh, understanding of, and of acting. So for him, that's yeah. again a very important thing. And then finally, among these elf blocks, which uh, we mentioned in your program also, that then he said the very principal thing in the art of personality is a friendly attitude. And that again is a thing you find again and again in so many of his lectures, your attitude towards others. What is your spiritual development? Development of your mind, of your heart, of your soul. What does all that mean, that development, if it does also to have that relationship to your fellow man? And to remind if you de discover in your mystical experience something of the divine spark in the depth of your inner being, in the depth of your soul then recognize that every human being has that divine impulse which gave him life. That the divine impulse which is the origin of all human life, all existing, all manifestation, is that something of a kind of impulse which you cannot really analyze, which, which we see is there. There is that impulse of life, and that impulse of life in everything in manifestation is a particular, of course, present in every human being, and a human, every human being, we call it that divine spark in the inner being of man, realize that, and therefore, towards every person you meet, have a friendly attitude, and feel about people with a friendly attitude, as much as you possibly can, because there is the, uh, the kind of spontaneity, there's, there's a tendency to give to the other once understanding one's fellow feeling that he says is the fulfillment of this development of the human being and then of course he brings up these ideas of dharma and adharma consciousness of one's obligations towards others your dharma is your consciousness if it is not there then uh, well then it is adharma then it is not it has not that sense of of duty which you have to have towards your fellow man Due to the very sacral sense, of course, Dharma is, of course, it's in a very spiritual, yeah. religious sense, it is that or sacred obligation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let's go back to attitude. And so on, on attitude, you, you've highlighted something I think is so incredibly powerful. This idea that everyone has a divine spark and that everyone means that even those people that you feel like they don't get it, you know, they are far removed from you in terms of their values, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We're living in a time in society where painfully so there are so many divisions. Yes. And um, this this notion that can we approach every conversation, every individual, every interaction from that place of deep faith that there is a divine spark within this person and part of my goal is to find a way to draw it out. I just find that really, really rewarding and inspiring. There's something I, I, was, I was reading again in the book by Hazrat Nayat Khan on personality, as you're saying on attitude, where he says, um, the best opportunity that life offers is to get all the good from every person. Exactly. And that opportunity is lost when you start seeing the bad side and overlooking the good. But if we saw some good, we don't have to yes. see everything good, but if we see some good in every person, we can take it and collect it. And yes. 
that is the way that um, we we appreciate you know that person we come closer to that person but we also become richer and richer with beauty and in the end you know that beauty so collected results in a beautiful personality i i love this idea that what 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 he's saying is that this is not just a discipline that you have in order to respect other people and to be good to other people actually it comes back to you because when you start borrowing from the goodness in everybody you start becoming a beautiful painting something like that is that right yes, exactly i guess it established that kind of circulation among people even if a difficult person just remember there must be somewhere something which you can communicate with which you can draw out of him and that is a kind of service to that human being as well to the other as well So uh there are so many incredible qualities you've shared with us today I mean what could be a practical first step that we can take if we aspire to really advance this art of personality can you guide us as you said he sometimes he would have a very i i forget the words you use but something like a light touch very kind of gentle simple small little something to start people you know so could you give us an example of what something like that could be for us yes well this is that gentleness of character that's very important to him but at the same time try to train yourself in the first place to look whether you what beauty can you identify what beauty can you identify in your surroundings in your fellow man something which you can relate to in the sense of so that's a way to start the sympathy with everyone that's an ultimate fulfillment but it already starts with looking at developing a sense of beauty in oneself maybe it was always easy to start with his fellow man but one can start with some sense of beauty somewhere and that will expand once that sense of beauty is there that's the very first thing really he says and there is a, uh, the art of being able to love beauty all right and that will extend, expand wherever it begins but it will extend in time when it really is expand into well related to his fellow man as well not only to those one loves but even with those one with whom one has maybe not a good relationship or when we have no relationship at all but something like this will establish that kind of relationship to your fellow man in general yes wonderful i'm i'm taking a quote from the book uh, to build on what you just said uh, sir and he's saying here he's saying mistake is in the nature of the human being but try to make it less and less there must be the tendency to making fewer mistakes the yes. more one alters the more there is a tendency to alter and the more one keeps the more there is a tendency to keep exactly. um, and so yes. it's this notion of just small steps that become yes. big leaps over time yes. and also never be too intimidated when you fail or when you fall to fa- failing and falling is natural for the human don't be too dramatic about it of course get up yeah. and go on and certainly by all means but yeah. do not I mean but you sometimes find a certain very religious community they are overcome by sinfulness how very sinful they are and all that kind of thing well that's a kind of equation as well you are not going to be relieved out of outward uh, ego egotism if you say how very sinful you are forget of course acknowledge your mistakes and learn from them but feel that from any failure or any fall you have learned and so with that learning you can go on again and leave it behind you yes you know there are very powerful lessons here in what you have shared not just for our individual journey but i'm also proposing that there are lessons here for our journey as a family for our journey as a community for our journey as a nation and yes. for a journey as an organization let's say if we are in business this idea that we have an ideal point that yes. we use as a north star about the kind of values we want to assimilate and practice the kind yes. of people we want to be the kind of culture we want to be yes. but we also have this very human acceptance that we are not there yet yes and that we can take small steps Precisely. towards getting there Precisely. and be honest with ourselves each time yes. we fall that we have yes. fallen and we will learn from this and exactly. we will strive on yes, you know exactly. and if this idea could be part of our national consciousness yes. if this could be part of our family consciousness a parent apologizing to a child about a slip up in how they acted in a certain way yes, a president yes. apologizing to a nation about a slip up in how we acted in a certain hour yes, yes, a ceo yes. apologizing to the organization that that we are human this is the ideal point we all agree on it I have failed in this regard but I'm acknowledging it and I'm going to strive to move on in a different way. I wonder what kind of a world we could create. Yes, exactly. Well, that's very much a, that's very much a point indeed. Uh, and uh, relating to that there's one thing which, you know, 
which emphasizes also very much all, all these values. You develop your values not only in spiritual life, but or even in business life, even in life in the world. Don't think that you just abandon that or you don't become conscious of that. He says, for instance, let me, if you allow, I'll read two short passages of his about this. That He says, the real mystic should have just as good qualifications for business, for industry, for social and political life as the materially-minded man. The mystic should be a wonderful scientist, an influential statesman, an inspired artist. And then he says, I don't like it when people tell me you are a mystic. I thought you would not take notice of this or that kind of worldly thing. Why should I not take notice of it? I take notice of every little detail, although every little detail does not occupy my mind so much that I don't take notice of anything else. But so, and then again, he goes on to say, those who evolve spiritually only become one-sided. They expand only the inner consciousness and not the outward one. They may become unbalanced. Maybe spiritually they have extraordinary powers, but if they have no balance, what is it? If that is the understanding of the world, we should be most conscientious in order not to give the world the wrong impression. And that is the point what he makes. If we have a profession, if we are in business or in industry, we should do it fully, proving to the world that we can be as practical as everybody else and also economical, regular in every way, systematic, persevering, enthusiastic. All these qualities we must show and at the same time evolve spiritually. But it is these qualities which will give us the proof of our spirituality. I mean, that just had my hair standing on edge. You know, it was like, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And... Um, you know, it does validate, I think, the possibilities for all of us, isn't it? Whichever station life has put us in, whatever profession or career or role we have been put in, yes, we are being asked to be mystics in those moments, you know, <laughs> and to bring the highest spirituality yes. to those yes. moments and also to allow life to mold us and to, you know, exactly. further advance us. And he has another passage that he says somewhere, he said, I've sometimes met a, bi a businessman who were all their life only in business. But through their business, through that single-minded development of what they wanted to achieve, well, they achieved in, in their own way something which mystics spent years on trying to achieve in their, in their way. You see that if, if your whole sense of selfhood is sort of merged into the object of what you want to achieve, that's, uh, then you become, so to speak, that object that you have wanted to achieve. Well, that's a fulfillment in itself. And yes. He tells of another businessman who had, at the end of his acquired a large estate, and Inatra was staying, stayed with him. And then he went for a walk in the evening through that estate. And then Inatra said to him, How far does this, this, this estate extend? Then this man said to him, Would you like to know? Well, all this which you see here, but also that adjoining sea which you can see from here and the sky and, the, and everything which is there, that's all mine. And uh -huh. that man was a businessman, but he was a mystic. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so beautiful, so beautiful. Uh, if that yeah. is there or something, then it will achieve its goal anyway. Yeah, yeah. As we wrap up, can you share your um, earthly age with us in this life? <laughs> well, I'm supposed to be 93. <laughs> I mean, folks, can you believe that? I mean, uh, I didn't want to highlight that until we came to the very end because I wanted you to be as um, blissfully fooled as I was when I first interacted with you. When I did not know your age, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it because there is such a almost like a boyish and a buoyant, joyful, you know, spirit in you. And a spirit of that, especially the boyishness. That's that. Yeah, yeah. And one metric that I found personally very intriguing is in thinking about a successful life is what is it like when one ages? What is one's spirit like? And, you know, what is the consciousness with which one is operating, you know, etc. And I mean, it's incredible. You are a, in some ways to me, a living museum of what a life could be if we were to approach every moment with this discipline that you have shared with us of the pursuit of beauty, of the art of personality. And in your case, this very elevating Sufi teachings that uh, clearly you, you are living just as much as you're teaching. 
I'm so grateful on behalf of all of us. A big thank you to so many in your family that have made such noble contributions towards codifying and propagating and modernizing this really priceless, you know, priceless uh, Sufi wisdom. And to you in particular, I also want to do a, you know, a little outreach and thank you to um, your daughters, you know, Sophia, Olia, who have been very thoughtful partners as well in helping us uh, craft this session. Very, very grateful and um, want to wish you, want to wish you a really beautiful, healthy, uh, multi-century journey in life that um, uh, can allow us to keep drinking from this fountain. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your very cordial and encouraging words. And I must say what huge joy and inspiration it is for me to see that you, who from my point of view are very much the younger generation, we are carrying on this shared Indian sense of outer life with inner reality, carrying on these two together, ennobling life in this way to have this togetherness of one's outer achievement and one's inner enlightenment. And that you carrying this on in your way, in this way which is understandable for people of today and tomorrow. For me, that is a wonderful encouragement to see. So may you be very, very successful in every way and every direction of your further course. In that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since we both have a shared Indian tradition, if I was uh, with you and if I could um, take that liberty, you know, if you would give me that, I would be, you know, bowing down and touching your feet right now. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much.